0: Good morning. Good morning, Crosswalk. Thank you guys so much. You are amazing. I just have to tell you, my my family and I have been blessed to be a part of this incredible community for almost 10 years. This is our 10th year, and we can't imagine what it would have been like if we hadn't been here. You have made our lives so much better, and thank you for what you do for God's kingdom here at Crosswalk. We love you guys. Also, just reminded how, how blessed we are to live in the freedom and the peace that we do right here and our, our calling to step into the parts of the world that need our help, like the Ukraine right now. So if there is something you can do is, of course, be praying for them. And any way you can do that that God's calling you to, we would love to cheer you on in that to help all those hurting and, and desperate people who are going through times we can't even imagine right now. Well, I am so glad to be here with you guys today. We are in week three of our sermon series, Beloved, on the book of John. And as you know from last week, Pastor Tim talked about an amazing section that talked about Jesus' miracles and the the ways that those express God into this world. And today we're going to be talking about a section of the book of John that is going to find Jesus often, okay, just about all the time in confrontation and conflict. All the time, people are upset with him for the things he is saying, the things he is doing, from text to text, from chapter to chapter, there is confrontation with Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I'm not a big fan of confrontation. Not, I'm, not, I'm pretty sure most of you don't go looking for confrontation. Some of you, may, may, but not most of you, right? We're not big on confrontation. In fact, Uh, A few weeks ago, my wife and I had the privilege of going to visit some friends in Coronado Island in San Diego. It's a nice place to have friends, and they're amazing friends. And we went down, and we were going to enjoy our time there. And it was beautiful weather. We were looking forward to getting up. We were going to go out and enjoy the the day. Uh, And we got up, and our friends said, oh, well, we thought before we went out and did anything else today, there's a yard sale I'd like to go to. Now, nothing against yard sales, I'm, we're just not really yard sale people, just not something we spend our time doing. We thought, well, if, if you want to, it's, it's okay. And she said, I think you'll want to go to this yard sale. Uh, we said, well, why is that? Well, it's here on the island. It's, a, it's at a $6 million home. Um, it's owned by an interior decorator, and she stages homes that are being sold, and she's trying to get rid of a lot of her things. And my wife said, that would be great. We should go. And so we went to the yard sale, and we went Have you ever been to someone's garage and it felt like you were in a store? I mean, all the furniture, I think, was new. There was price tags on everything. That way we knew whether or not we were getting a good deal. I'm not sure we did. But it was amazing to be in. But our friend couldn't find what she was looking for. And then the owner, who was very sweet, said, well, I actually have a whole other room that's filled with things that are for sale. And we said, wait, what do you mean? She says, come into my guest house. I'll go in the guest house. That's great. So we went into the guest house. I felt like I'd stepped into a magazine of you know, coastal living, like the, everything there was perfect for a, a magazine shoot. It felt like you were at the beach, which you were. Everything was perfectly decorated. And we said, wait, so everything in here is for sale? She says, yeah, anything, anything. So we had just walked in and my wife happened to look over and she spotted a little figurine of a dog on a pedestal and it had one of our daughter's names on it. She goes, honey, look, this is hilarious. Look at this. And so So I turned to look just in time to see the owner saying, those are my dog's ashes. (laughs) Check please. (laughs) I was pretty sure the sale was over and we were going to have security called on us. What do you say? We're like, all of a sudden we were having a good time and in confrontation we made fun of her dog's ashes. And my wife, bless her, saved the day. She's such a kind person. She immediately turned and said, I am so sorry. It's just that it had our daughter's name on it. And the lady said, oh, well, if you'd like it, I can take the ashes out. I, th- I think you should keep it. It's okay. It, it looks good here. Um, It's kind of coastal, so we didn't take that home. If you have those moments of unexpected confrontation, you're not looking for it, all of a sudden there it is. It's uncomfortable, right? And I feel like maybe Jesus' disciples were feeling that way because at every turn there was confrontation with Jesus. Uh, And he's these disciples aren't looking for it, but what about Jesus? Because you know what? Makes us uncomfortable, I think, when we think of Jesus in conflict and confrontation. We have this image of Jesus, I think, that we're comfortable with, and Jesus in confrontation doesn't always fit that image that we have. And in trying to wrap my head around this a bit, for some reason, this quote from Mats Karnsberg, um, who has this great quote about technology, I know it has nothing to do with the book of John, but it just struck me, and his quote says this, technology is neither good nor bad, nor is it neutral. And why? Because technology has an impact. Technology makes a difference. It's not good or bad, but by the very nature of the fact that it changes things, it's not neutral. And here's the reality. Jesus came into this world to be anything but neutral. Anything but neutral. Why? Because he came into this world to make an impact, the biggest impact we've ever thought of. He came into this world to change things. He came into this world to overcome evil, to conquer sin and death. He came here to bring us salvation. That's going to bring confrontation by its very nature. So he came knowing this would happen and he didn't back away. He stepped into it for you and me. And so in the text we're covering today, yeah, we're going to see Jesus in confrontation and we're going to be covering a lot of scripture. So you may remember that last week Pastor Tim said we needed to hurry because he was covering two chapters of scripture. He gave me six chapters to cover. (laughs) Pastor Tim, wherever you are right now, thank you, brother. I appreciate that. Um, so we're going to be, last week he was put on a seatbelt. Today you're going to put on a five-point harness like you're going to get on a roller coaster because we need to move quickly through here because we will have a lot to cover. But here's the thing. Um, we're going to get a road map that's going to help us. Okay, so let's get a road map about where we're going and that will give us a better grasp. So let's start with this. Why did John write the book of John? What was his whole point in this letter? Well, he tells us in John chapter 20, verse 31. So here's why John says he wrote this. He says, But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. So, just to put it more simply, John says, Look, I want you to believe that Jesus is the Messiah so that you can have eternal life. Period. So what does he do in these chapters to help accomplish this? Well, he's going to tell us some of these claims of Jesus, who Jesus says he is. And to really understand the impact of these claims, we have to put them in context. Here's why. We're reading these 2,000 years later. We've heard them. And because you're here worshiping in church, I'm assuming you probably have some context of who you believe that Jesus is 2,000 years later. You have to take it back 2,000 years. How would the people have heard this? These claims that he were making, was making that we just skim by and go, oh yeah, that's nice. They would not have skimmed over and said, oh, that's nice. These, were, these statements really were confrontational to them, especially if you understand how and when Jesus was saying these and what, the, what he was trying to get across. So. We need to look through this. And what he does is John takes four Jewish holy days or feasts. And, he, and within these, he tells the story, which Jesus did, of when he made these claims. And we're going to start with the Sabbath, a Sabbath, the Passover, the Feast of Tabernacles, and the Feast of Dedication, what we call Hanukkah. So as we jump in here, in each one of these, Jesus is going to make a claim about himself, a claim that you cannot ignore. It's a claim that demands a response. And then we see the confrontation coming and the conflict. So our story starts off in Jerusalem. It starts off on a Sabbath day. And we're gonna begin in chapter five, verse two. It says, inside the city near the sheep gate was the pool of Bethesda with five covered porches. A beautiful place. Crowds of sick people, blind, lame or paralyzed lay on the porches. And one of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, would you like to get well? And I think it's worth pausing there to note that Jesus didn't come in and just heal him. Jesus honored this man's own individual agency and he asked him, do you want to be healed? I give you that choice, just like he does with us do you want this? He offers salvation, do you want this? It's, it's yours if you take it. Um, I wonder how many things God offers us. And he says, would you like this? And so often we just don't accept what he has to offer. Well, this man hears this, and he doesn't realize Jesus is offering to heal him. He just wonders if Jesus is asking, do you want to be well? And he goes with the context he understands. And he says, well, I can't, sir. The sick man said, for I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. And they believed when it bubbled that perhaps an angel had touched it, they could be healed if they got in. Um, it was, we understand, probably some of the, the stream that was coming from underneath, the water coming up, and it would bubble occasionally or maybe transferring from the other pool. But they thought that was the case, and he thinks he needs to get in, but no one's there to help him, and, and he needs the help because of his physical condition. So Jesus told him, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. And instantly the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking. But this miracle happened on the Sabbath. And if you remember from our sermon series a couple months ago where we talked about pause, our whole sermon series on the Sabbath, you'll remember all the things in context with this. And you can go back and I invite you, encourage you to go do that. We spent a lot of time talking about the context of Sabbath there. But what happens? Well, in chapter 5, verse 10, so the Jewish leaders objected. They said to the man who was cured, You can't work on the Sabbath. The law doesn't allow you to carry that sleeping mat. So, Now, you have to understand, they said the law doesn't. That was their law. In the Old Testament, it didn't talk about carrying your mat or really carrying anything. It just said, remember the Sabbath day and don't do work. And so in order to make sure they weren't doing work, they had created huge numbers, if you remember our series, huge numbers of laws about what work was on the Sabbath. And they got very specific. And so Jesus asked this man to pick up his mat. And I wonder how intentional that may have been from Jesus to really point out the points he needed them to understand. Because in their law, it said you could carry something but only as far as you were tall. So I guess the shorter you were, the harder life was gonna be on Sabbath. But here's the thing I pick something up, I'm done, right? And so there, there are all kinds of laws like this were so specific so they wouldn't break the Sabbath by working, and they had these laws set up. Well, the problem is they thought, well, maybe is God breaking the Sabbath then? Because it, God must be holding up the universe, God must be holding up the things He has made. Um, is He breaking the Sabbath by working? And they said, no, we have another law, remember, we have a law that says it does not work if you are carrying something in your own courtyard. Oh, and isn't the universe God's courtyard? Therefore God's not working because he's carrying something in his own courtyard. And you can start to see where this logic goes. Here's the issue. We start to face a real problem when we start evaluating God through the lens of our own laws and rules rather than evaluating our own lives, laws and rules through the lens of God. And how often do we do that? We start putting God in the box we've created rather than allowing us to be put into the box he has for us, which is not a box, but complete freedom, right? And so we so often get things out of whack, and and that's what they had done. And so it moves on, and Jesus says, he replied, the man who healed me told me, pick up your mat and walk. Well, who said such a thing as that, they demanded. And I like how the New International Version says it, I think it's a little closer. um, It says, who is this fellow that told you to pick up and walk? In other words, who is this man? And really, in John's book, that's the question he wants you to answer. Who is this man? Who is Jesus? Who is, what is his identity? Because the answer we give to that determines our response. We have to know who Jesus is and he's trying to tell us. Yet we skim over because we're so familiar with these stories. So, the man didn't know it was Jesus of course because he had, but when he found Jesus, he told the leaders. Now here's the thing, Jesus kind of slipped into the crowd. But when Jesus comes up and talks to the man, he realizes it's Jesus. And the leaders were upset with him for carrying his mat. So as soon as he finds out it's Jesus, what does he do? He gives him up. He betrays Jesus. He goes and he says, it was Jesus who told me to carry my mat. What I love about this is not that the man betrayed Jesus, but that Jesus, knowing this man was going to betray him, heals him anyway in his grace. And we can all be very thankful for that. That God's grace supersedes our failures. Yeah. And so he, he turns him over, right? And, and number 18, it's number 16, excuse me. So the Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. Confrontation begins and the confrontation between the leaders, the people, and Jesus will not end until Jesus is hanging on a cross. The, con- the confrontation has begun and it will not stop. It will just continue to escalate. But Jesus replied, my father is always working, and so am I. They called him on, work, on his work on the Sabbath. And Jesus comes back with, my father is always working, and so am I. So the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him. For he not only broke the Sabbath, he called God his father, thereby making himself equal with God. You see, Jesus didn't say, God, my father is working on the Sabbath, therefore I am working. He said, God is working on this, my father is working on the Sabbath and I am working. Because he is claiming now separate from God, but equal with God. You can't just make that claim. You can't just make that. If someone comes to lunch with you today and they sit down and they say um, I, um, God is my father, and I am, the, I am God's son and I am equal with God. You can't just let that slide. That kind of deserves a bit of conversation, right? And we often just hear these things and we let them go by right by. This would not have slipped by unanswered by the people of Jesus' day. This was cause for confrontation. Um, so what happens? Here's Jesus' claim about himself. On a Sabbath, Jesus heals a man, claims equality with God, and therefore makes himself the God of the Sabbath. You remember back in the book of Matthew, Jesus said, and so the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath, right? He is claiming equality with God and the Sabbath is his. Well, the leaders of course want to kill him. This is their response, let's get rid of him. And you can hear, start to just feel the, the momentum building, the hatred building, the conflict building. Well, Jesus' next claim, it happens during the Passover feast and this begins in chapter 16. So in verse three, it says, then Jesus climbed a hill and sat down with his disciples around him. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. And Jesus soon saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him. And turning to Philip, he asked, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? He was testing Philip, for he already knew what he was going to do. And Philip replied, even if we worked for months, we couldn't have enough money to feed them. And in fact, other versions say, even if we worked for six months and got all the wages, we could not even have enough to give them all a bite. This is a lot of people. Then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother spoke up and he said, well, there's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish, but what good is that with this such a huge crowd? Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is hilarious. This story is hilarious. Too often I think we hear stories of Jesus and we forget that his mouth could also go in an upward shape. Um, Somehow we forget that we are created in God's image and we have a sense of humor and it came from somewhere. And if we have a sense of humor, then God must have the ultimate sense of humor. And Jesus is here with his friends and his, 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 his buddies, right? And guys, we know what happens when we're with our friends. An opportunity presents itself, and we like to have some fun. And so Jesus sees this huge crowd. It says 5,000 just the men start rolling over the hill coming to look for him. And it said what? He already knows what he's going to do. And what does he say to Philip? Hey, Philip, where are we gonna get, where are we gonna get enough um, food to buy for these guys, right? Where where are we going to get enough food for them for us to buy? And and I'm Philip, and you're Philip. You're probably thinking, when you say for us to buy, do you mean us to buy? Like we're buying this food? And Philip says, it's it's too much. We, We don't have enough for that. And then big help Andrew steps in, because Andrew's going to solve this evidently. He sees these thousands and thousands of people, and he takes the little loaves and the little fish, and he goes, well, Jesus, I've got these. And I just imagine Peter's there going, Andrew, this is why you're not in charge of our money. (laughs) Numbers, you're not good with numbers. This is not the same. And and then look what Jesus does in the story. Okay, so he tells everyone to sit down, Jesus said. So they all sat down on the grassy slopes. The men alone numbered about 5,000. It's like Jesus said, oh, five little fish, and to be two little fish and five loaves of bread. Perfect, have them sit down. We got this covered. What, the disciples must be looking at each other. What do you mean we have got this? What? Have them sit down? Have you seen what Andrew brought? It's pitiful. And so they all sit down and you know the story. Jesus takes it, takes the little, and he blesses it. And then it says he passed it out. And I imagine it wasn't just Jesus. The disciples are passing it out. And can you imagine what it would be like for you as you take the little bit that you got as it was broken and you pass it out to a few people and you expect to be done and you look down and there's more? And it just keeps happening? At what point do you just start laughing? Right? At what point is, is the joy just bubbling over? and what point is the crowd catching on to what's happening, and everybody is in shock and awe, and maybe just laughing with joy at what they're experiencing, right? This is transformational. They, this was not lost on the people. They were amazed by what was happening. Well, Jesus, of course, feeds them, teaches them, and then that, that evening, he and the disciples go to the other side of the lake. And it says the next day that Jesus and his disciples are on the other side of the lake, and the people go looking for Jesus, and eventually they can't find him on one side, they think he's on the other. Some people bring some boats over, they jump in them. they take him off to the other side, and they find Jesus. And what do they want to know? They found him on the other side, it says in verse 25, on the other side of the lake, and they ask, Rabbi, when did you get here? And as Pastor Tim said so well last week, Jesus is playing chess when everyone else is playing checkers, right? He's so far ahead and they're asking the wrong question. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, you want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. But don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. For God the Father has given me the seal of his approval. Well. They answered, well, show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What can you do, right? They're still stuck. They said, after all, our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. Hint, hint, wouldn't some bread be nice like yesterday? You see, the problem was these people only saw Jesus as a commodity to exploit. What can you give us? What do you have for us? What are you going to do for us next? That was great. And as, as they begin to think this way, their image of Jesus got smaller and more shallow. And rather than being who he is, he became, if you will, a cosmic vending machine, right? Well, what else can you give? And I, I think too often we find ourselves in the same boat, right? Too often we use Jesus' name to get, to get something we want for our own selfish gain. We, we may use it for financial gain, for power, for comfort, politics, image, And the list goes on. Jesus is just a means to an end, right? Rather than being who he claims to be. When I saw again this story of the people only focused on what Jesus could do and only seeing the little bit of bread, um, it it was a challenge. And it reminded me of something you've heard me ask before. And the question is this, are you a follower of Jesus? Or are you just a fan of Jesus? Are you a sold out, fully committed follower of Jesus with your life? Or you only follow as long as it's easy or comfortable or doesn't cost you anything or you think you're going to get what you want? What kind of followers are we? Truly followers and disciples or followers of convenience? Are we just fans? And so many of the people that were following Jesus who claimed to be his disciples were just fans. You see. Jesus wants to set the record straight with them. And so in verse 35, he says, look, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever. And this bread, which I will offer so the world may live, is my flesh. So Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. You have to remember now, when did this all happen? It all happened on the Passover. What was the Passover celebrating? God's release of the people, the children of Israel, from their bondage in Egypt so that they could go to the promised land and be free, right? Free to worship God. And so what does he do? He says, on the night before, have a feast, a Passover feast. And what the, one of the major parts of the celebration is, of course, eating the unleavened bread and remembering how that they prepared the unleavened bread in expectation of their freedom that God had promised. And so Jesus comes and he, make, and he, and he creates bread out of just a few loaves for the people. But then he says... But this and that manna you want from, like you had in the wilderness, that's not what's important. I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread of life and I provide life eternal for you. Think bigger. What you need is what I have and what I have is my body. You see, Jesus' claim to the people is, I am the bread of life that gives eternal life. And how did the people respond? It had to have been been so disheartening for Jesus. In verse 60, it says, many of his disciples said, this is very hard to understand. How could anyone accept it? And at this point, it says, many of his disciples turned away and deserted Jesus. It was too much for him. It was too much to ask. It was complicated. Lord, we just wanted bread. We just wanted the good stuff, right? We just wanted the, the treats from all of this. You're calling for something more, and it's hard. And then Jesus Turned to the 12 because he saw the other disciples leaving. What about the 12 And he says, are you also going to leave? And you've got to love Simon Peter. He responds, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know you are the Holy One of God. Jesus puts the claim out there. This is who I am. How do we step into that claim? How do we take it into our lives, or do we? Well, Jesus' third set of claims comes during the Feast of Tabernacles. You may not be as familiar with this one. You may have heard bits and pieces. All right, so the Feast of Tabernacles was a week-long celebration um, that happened in the fall. It happened right after harvest and it was a huge celebration. People were excited. It was a party. There was so much fun that was happening. You may remember that they lived in tents during this time or huts because they were remembering their time in the Exodus. So Passover remembered their freedom from Egypt. The Feast of Tabernacles remembers their time in the wilderness going to the Promised Land and how God cared for them and so they lived in tents and huts and the kids must have loved this right they looked forward to this one and again because it was so much fun and the harvest was in it was a chance to relax and so they remembered all of God's blessing and all of their gratitude and care in the present for them as well and so do you remember God's gift of the water from the rock remember how God a number of times provides water for them in the desert they had a special ceremony that they performed during during the feast of tabernacles every day and here's what it was Each morning a procession of priests would draw water from the pool of Siloam and then they would return to the temple. When they got to the temple, they would proceed once around the altar while a choir was singing Psalm 113 to 118. And then at the time of the morning sacrifice, they would pour out the water. And this was a service of amazing joy. This wasn't some somber service. It was just joy and happiness because they reminded, well, God had cared for them and would therefore continue to care for them. And then on the seventh day of the feast, the priest would carry the water in and they would walk seven times around the altar before pouring it out during during the morning sacrifice. And it's on this seventh day that Jesus makes his claim. And here's what it is. On the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare, rivers of living water will flow from his heart. Jesus' claim, that he is the fulfillment of the celebration they're doing every day during this feast. I am the fulfillment of what you're celebrating. I am, I, I am the one who gives you living water, not just water to live in the desert. I'm the water to, one that gives you water to live forever, right? Now, the priest wanted to arrest Jesus, but the people were kind of confused at this point. Some were like, oh, I don't know. This sounds pretty good. And others weren't so happy with what Jesus had to say. During the Feast of Tabernacles, they also celebrated God's salvation, and especially through remembering the pillar of fire. You probably remember this part. As they were traveling across the desert, God's presence um, with them was was figuratively shown in this pillar of cloud, right? The pillar of cloud was there, and when it was time to move, the pillar of cloud would leave. When it was time to stop, it would stop, and it would stay there in the camp. By night, that pillar of cloud became a pillar of fire, And it was there for their protection and their comfort and their safety that God was there. God's presence is with us, right? Here he is right among us. And that was a huge blessing to them that they always look back on, remember God's care. And so every evening during the Feast of Tabernacles, there was a lamp lighting ceremony that took place in the temple. And the lamps were these that were set up in the court of the women. You may remember the temple was set up in parts for different people the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, and the court for the Jewish men. um, Each group being able to go farther. And it was in the court of the women. And in in the light of these lamps, with these huge lamps that were set up. And in fact, it said so much light that they lit up much of the city. I can't imagine how that is. But there was also singing and there was dancing and then celebration of God's salvation. Um, And they especially, again, celebrated this pillar of fire as God led them through the wilderness, which is what the whole Feast of Tabernacles is about. And it's in the sight now, Imagine this, Jesus is now in the, in the temple grounds, in the sight of these huge lamps that are lit, the celebration taking place. By the way, we think we are enthusiastic in our worship. From the sound of this, I think we could probably learn something from the people at, at, the, evening, at the evening service with these lamps, right? They were celebrated into the evening. And here, in the light of these lamps, Jesus makes his claim. And what does he say? It says, Jesus spoke to the people once more and said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. You think that's amazing. Let me tell you what I can do. The Pharisees replied, you are making those claims about yourself. Such a testimony is not valid. Jesus here is claiming what? To be the one who saves people. He saves God's people. In fact, all the people of the whole world from spiritual bondage. And the response of the Pharisees, they reject his claim outright. Reject it. It's too much for us. We don't like it. And then Jesus' final claims comes during the Feast of Dedication. This one you're probably not too familiar with, except when someone says, "Oh, well, that's the Feast of Hanukkah. Oh, we've heard of the Feast of Lights before. But we may not know as much about what that was all about. So it celebrated the rededication of the temple in 164 BC. And why did the temple need to get rededicated? Well, because the Seleucid king Antiochus IV Epiphanes had conquered Jerusalem. And when he did, he was saying to the people, you can only worship Zeus, which of course they wanted nothing to do with. and you have to understand also that the, uh, the role of the temple in their lives. The temple for the Jewish people was at the very heart and center of their lives and their faith, right? The temple symbolized uh, not only forgiveness... But it symbolized with the priest, the mediator between a holy God and his fallen people. And it also symbolized God's presence there with his people. And what did the Seleucid, the Seleucid king do? Antiochus 4 Epiphanes comes in and he desecrates the temple. He sets up his own altar. He offers an unholy sacrifice and the people are going to have none of this. And at this point, we have what we call the Maccabean revolt. And people rise up and... Judas, known as Maccabeus, comes and he leads the people, and they were actually able to kick out this powerful Seleucid empire. And they were then able to restore the temple, to cleanse it, and then rededicate it, to reconsecrate it back to God. And so here at this feast, the feast of rededication, every year they celebrated the the temple in their lives, and all that it meant to them, and the rededication of the temple. And so they had an eight-day feast each year to celebrate this. And This is also about, this is also Jesus' last public teaching, which puts a little more gravitas into what he's about to say. This is his last public teaching. This is the the climax of what Jesus has to say because he has no more public teachings from now until after he um, enters the final week of his life with the triumphal entry. So we hang on what Jesus has to say here. And it's now that he makes his strongest, most powerful, most conflict-inducing claim of them all. Verse 22, it was now winter, and Jesus was in Jerusalem at the time of Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication. He was in the temple walking through the section known as Solomon's Colonnade. The people surrounded him and asked, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. And Jesus replied, I have already told you, and you don't believe me. The proof is the work I do in my Father's name. And we don't really have a description in the English language strong enough, but the idea that the works he was doing, these miracles, these were the works of God. You should see the evidence for who I am from what I am doing. You, You could have seen it just from what I've done and accomplished, but you want my words as well, which I've been giving you. And then Jesus speaks this claim and says, the Father and I are one. Once again, the people immediately, they picked up stones to kill him. And by the way, they don't pick up little stones. When they were going to stone somebody, they picked up big stones. And Jesus, if you keep reading, doesn't step away from this confrontation. And sometimes in the past, it wasn't his time, so he would slip away at that time. But this time, he stands there, and he speaks to them, and he says, Why do you call it blasphemy when I say, I am the Son of God? After all, the Father set me apart. Jesus isn't done with his claim. What were they there for? The feast of rededication was remembering how they were rededicating what? The temple of God. The word rededicate is the word to set apart. To consecrate is to set apart. Jesus is saying, I am the one that God has set apart. I am the one that God has dedicated and consecrated. I am one with God. You see, he is claiming to have been consecrated by God just like they are celebrating with the temple. In fact, more than that, he is actually claiming not only to be God, but he is the fulfillment of the temple. How? He is the sacrificial lamb. He is the mediator from a holy, holy God and his fallen people. And he is the absolute presence of God who is one with God in their presence on earth. This is not a claim that, the, that if you don't believe you can idly set by. He wanted the people to respond. There was no way that you could, you could step away from this without making some response. And instead, they wanted to stone him. We have these amazing claims from Jesus, and that's, we know how they responded then. They turned away, they rejected him, they laughed at him, they wanted to kill him. But the question really is, what do we do with these claims? What are you going to do with Jesus' claims to who he is? Because Jesus made crazy, outlandish, arrogant, and blasphemous claims, unless they're true. These these aren't claims that we can just ignore and slip past us, right? We have to respond, it demands a response. We can't just look and smile and nod and say, oh, that's nice. And it all starts, how we respond all starts with answering the question that we heard in chapter five. When the Jews ask, who is this man? because your answer to that question changes everything. And perhaps no one has put it better than C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, which we referred to in the study guide. And if you haven't heard for a long time this quote, this is the time to hear it again. Lewis says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, they say, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and you can call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Who we say Jesus is and how we respond to his claims absolutely changes the rest of the trajectory of our lives and our eternity. Will you reject him as evil? Will you ignore him as completely deluded? Or will you and I respond with Peter who said, Lord, to whom else will we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know that you are the Holy One of God. Let's pray. Jesus, you are not a far-off and distant God. You are a God who is up close and personal, a God who wants to be known for who you are just as we are known to you for who we are. You are a God who speaks clearly about who you are and what you can offer, and what you stay demands a response from us. Lord, may we step into that. With open arms, may we accept your claim to be the almighty God of the universe, the Savior, the one who offers us more than we could ever have hoped or dreamed about. May we not see a possibility like Peter of going anywhere else. Because when we realize who you are, there is nowhere else. And you are far more than enough. So Jesus, we give our lives, our eternity, our hope to you. Amen.